You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 441 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As promised with this show, we're starting some year in review episodes in which we'll look back at what happened in 1863. As you guys may recall, we did the same thing when we reached the end of 1861 and 1862 on the podcast timeline. We think these episodes are not only a nice way to review the things that we talked about on the show, but also a good way to cover other things that weren't part of the main storyline. We're going to jump right in, but as we start off, we actually need to go back to the last day of December 1862, because as some of you may recall, as the calendar turned over from 1862 to 1863, the Federal and Confederate armies in Tennessee were locked in battle outside the town of Murfreesboro. That's right. The Battle of Stones River had started on December 31st, and didn't end until the second day of the new year. The fighting pitted the 38,000 Confederates of Braxton Bragg's Army of Tennessee against the 47,000 Federals of William Rosecrans' Army of the Cumberland. Stones River became the deadliest battle of the Civil War in proportion to number of troops engaged, with more than one-third of the rebel force killed, wounded, or missing, and the Yankee Army suffering 31% casualties. Lieutenant James Mitchell of Company B of the 34th Alabama will write to his father, Our company suffered very severely. Six men were killed outright and 14 wounded. Two men next to me were shot dead in their tracks, one receiving a ball in his breast and the other through his head. At the same time, a ball passed through both the coats I had on, my overcoat and frock coat, but thank God I was not hurt. On January 1st, there was a lull in the fighting as both sides caught their breath. Union Brigadier General John Beatty noted in his diary, quote, Both armies want rest. Both sides have suffered terribly. Here and there, little parties are engaged in burying their dead, which lie thick around us. A little before sundown, all hell seems to break loose again, and for about an hour the thunder of artillery and volleys of musketry are deafening, 
but it is simply the evening salutations of the combatants. The darkness deepens. The weather is raw and disagreeable. Fifty thousand hungry men are stretched beside their guns on the field. Fortunately, I have a piece of pork and a few crackers in my pocket. No food ever tasted sweeter. Across the battlefield, Lieutenant Mitchell welcomes the night with two comrades. Quote, we slept by turns, wrapped in the wet blanket and sitting up by the side of a tree. The next day, Friday, January 2nd, the fierce combat is renewed, and the Federals eventually push the Confederates back. Regarded as a Union victory, this costly engagement will raise spirits in the North, which so recently suffered the stinging defeat at Fredericksburg. President Lincoln will write to Rosecrans, I can never forget, whilst I remember anything, you gave us a hard-earned victory, which, had there been a defeat instead, the nation could hardly have lived over. One of the most momentous events of the war and in all of American history takes place on New Year's Day, January 1, 1863, when Abraham Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation. Few events in American history match the drama and significance of emancipation in the midst of the Civil War. Through 1861 and into 1862, the official purpose of the war, on the federal side of course, was the restoration of the Union, not to uproot slavery. But the Lincoln administration's emancipation policies evolved under the pressure of escalating military difficulties, and as slaves began to flee in large numbers to Union forces, principally in Virginia, Tennessee, and along the eastern and Gulf coasts. By the spring and summer of 1862, both Congress and President Lincoln began to address emancipation more directly until in September, five days after the Battle of Antietam, Lincoln issued his preliminary emancipation proclamation. In that document, he announced his intention to free all the slaves in the states still, quote, unquote, in rebellion on January 1st, 1863. And so, on the first day of the new year, Abraham Lincoln kept that promise. Lincoln freed the slaves in the areas of the South still in rebellion as a war measure under his powers as commander-in-chief. Because he anticipated slave owners would challenge it in court for restitution of their property once the war was over, Lincoln wrote the proclamation in the dry language of a legal brief. But nevertheless, the phrase, forever free, has resounded down through the ages. Every forward movement of the federal armies would now be a liberating step. The proclamation served as an open invitation to slaves to flee at every opportunity to Union forces. Even more important, it authorized the enlistment of black soldiers and sailors. When Abraham Lincoln issued his proclamation on January 1, 1863, it was one of the true turning points of the Civil War. From that day forward, while his administration's goal remained the defeat of the Confederacy and the restoration of the Union, 
The Emancipation Proclamation meant it would be a transformed union, one without slavery. Also on January 1st, Confederate forces under John B. Magruder gained an impressive victory at the Texas port city of Galveston when they successfully attacked the Federal Garrison and Naval Squadron that have controlled the place since October. Galveston will remain in rebel hands for the rest of the war, finally surrendering on June 2nd, 1865. On January 9th, As the struggle for control of the Mississippi River continues, 32,000 federal troops commanded by John McClernand and a supporting naval squadron under David Dixon Porter reached the Confederate bastion of Fort Hindman at Arkansas Post, about 50 miles up the Arkansas River from where it empties into the Mississippi. Constructed in 1862 with the labor of some 500 slaves, The fort and the 5,000-man garrison's initial stout defense will prove formidable obstacles for McClernand's soldiers. However, a fierce bombardment by the Union Naval Squadron will be the decisive factor, forcing the rebels to surrender the fort on the 11th. Also on January 11th, off Galveston, the Confederate commerce raider CSS Alabama, commanded by Raphael Sims, engages USS Hatteras, captained by Lieutenant H.C. Blake. Hatteras is sunk, and Alabama, after taking the rescued federal sailors to Jamaica, will continue with its task, in Sims' words, quote, of annoying the enemy's commerce. On January 12th, Jefferson Davis, in a message to the Confederate Congress, calls Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, quote, the most execrable measure in the history of guilty man, end quote. And Davis vows that when federal officers are captured leading black troops, they will be turned over to southern state governments for punishment as, quote, criminals engaged in inciting servile insurrection, end quote, which in the South is a crime punishable by death. Begun with high hopes on January 20th, Ambrose Burnside's attempt to cross the Rappahannock upriver from Fredericksburg and flank Robert E. Lee will be defeated, not by the rebels, but by the weather. The failed movement, coming less than a month after Burnside had led the Army of the Potomac to bloody defeat at Fredericksburg, will be known as the Mud March. On the 25th, a federal soldier in the 83rd Pennsylvania writes to his sister, saying, Well, Burnside has moved again and got stuck in the mud. That is the short of it. The long of it was the five days it took us to get six miles and back to camp. End quote. That same day, the 25th, in Washington, Burnside meets with Abraham Lincoln and asks the president to either dismiss several subversive officers serving under him or to accept Burnside's own resignation and Lincoln accepts Burnside's resignation. The president already has a replacement in mind. The next day, the 26th, in a remarkable letter, Abraham Lincoln writes to Major General Joseph Hooker, telling him, 
I have placed you at the head of the Army of the Potomac. After noting Hooker's many fine qualities, including bravery, skill as a soldier, and self-confidence, Lincoln chastises his new army commander for thwarting Burnside, quote, as much as you could, in which you did a great wrong to the country and to a brother officer. Lincoln goes on to tell Hooker, I have heard, in such way as to believe it, of your recently saying that both the army and the government needed a dictator. Of course, it was not for this, but in spite of it, that I have given you the command. Only those generals who gain successes can set up dictators. What I now ask of you is military success, and I will risk the dictatorship. On February 2nd, as part of Ulysses S. Grant's attempts to get at Vicksburg, the Federals will launch the Yazoo Pass expedition to try to establish an alternative water route to get at the Confederate bastion along the Mississippi River. However, the Yankees' attempt has been anticipated by John C. Pemberton, the rebel commander at Vicksburg, and his name has been given to a small fort that will stymie the Federals' progress. After repeated artillery fire and infantry probes failed to dislodge the Confederates in the fort, the Yazoo Pass expedition will end in failure on March 20th. On February 10th, Alabama-based Confederate nurse Kate Cummings writes in her diary, quote, It is remarkable that there never were so many women and children traveling as there are now. Numbers of ladies, whose husbands are in the Army, have been compelled to give up their homes for economy and protection and seek shelter among their relatives. We have a large, floating population, the people who have been driven from their homes by the invader. It's estimated that by the war's end, at least 200,000 Southerners will have been displaced. This number includes not only white Confederates, but also slaves who were moved by their owners to areas thought less likely to fall under control of the federal military. On February 13th, the Legislative Act granting Jefferson Davis the authority to suspend the writ of, writ of habeas corpus expires. As the Confederate Congress debates an extension, which will not be granted until February 1864, it demands an accounting of civilians currently held under suspicion of disloyalty by the Confederate War Department. The department responds with a list of 302 names. On February 22nd, a chaplain in the Army of the Potomac wrote to his hometown newspaper, admitting that he had quite a scare that day when, quote, it seemed as though a great battle were opening. However, he was quickly reminded that the heavy cannonade was just Federal and Confederate batteries firing salutes in honor of George Washington's birthday. He continued writing, quote, Ah, yes, how stupid not to have remembered. Federals and Confederates both shooting at the memory of Washington. Fortunate, no doubt, that the old gentleman is dead. The flames of this rebellion may yet consume all the seeming good our fathers accomplished. On February 25th, the National Currency Act becomes law in the Union. 
It will be renewed and renamed the National Bank Act in 1864. It aims to boost the demand for federal greenbacks and provides a framework for greater investment in government bonds by which the war is being financed. It lays the groundwork for the national banking system that will be in place for more than 50 years. The next day, February 26th, the pro-union Cherokee National Council, under the leadership of John Ross, repeals the Cherokee Ordinance of Succession and passes an act immediately abolishing slavery within the Cherokee Nation. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. On March 3rd, Abraham Lincoln signs the Enrollment Act, which is the first national draft in the history of the United States. By the end of 1862, there had been a sharp decline in volunteering, and a new method had to be employed to meet the manpower needs of the federal armies. In the act's final form, males 20 to 45 were to be drafted first, followed by married men between the ages of 36 to 46. 17 to 20-year-olds could serve with the permission of a parent or guardian. A lottery in each congressional district would determine who would be drafted. However, if the proper number of men had volunteered in a given district, the draft wouldn't apply there. So, it was in the interest of county and city authorities to actively recruit men to volunteer in order to keep the draft from affecting people in their area. The most controversial aspect of the Enrollment Act was its provisions for various exemptions and the fact that, whether able to secure an exemption or not, all men called into service could legally avoid it by providing a substitute. The Enrollment Act was radical in that it allowed the federal government to replace northern states as the primary agency for military enlistment. Although the draft itself, for a variety of reasons, 
faced opposition, sometimes violent opposition, and was largely a failure in some states, with only 6% of federal soldiers ending up being draftees, it did stimulate volunteering for the remainder of the war. On March 6th, a mob of white men rampages through black neighborhoods in Detroit, Michigan, destroying 32 houses, killing several people, and leaving more than 200 blacks homeless. The incident is just one of several violent episodes in 1863 directed against Northern blacks, fueled by job worries and racist rhetoric by Democratic politicians. Confederate cavalry officer John Singleton Mosby delights the Confederacy on March 8th and embarrasses the North when he and a small band of his partisan rangers steal through Union lines and enter the northern Virginia town of Fairfax Courthouse, which is filled with slumbering federal troops. Mosby finds Brigadier General Edwin Stoughton in bed, asleep. The Confederates return to friendly lines with the general, 32 other prisoners, and 58 captured horses. On March 10th, by a vote of 5-4, to four, the U.S. Supreme Court hands down a decision favorable to the Lincoln administration in the prize cases, which involved the Union Navy's seizure of four vessels, or prizes, violating the federal blockade of southern ports. At issue is whether Lincoln exceeded his constitutional authority in ordering the blockade when Congress hadn't declared a state of war. The court rules that although only Congress can declare war, the president did have the power to put down an insurrection. The rationale advanced by the court also, by implication, supports other controversial presidential actions, such as the issuance of the Emancipation Proclamation and suspension of habeas corpus. Even as the Federal's Yazoo Pass expedition is faltering, David Dixon Porter embarks on another attempt to approach Vicksburg from the north. Porter's Steel's Bayou expedition sets out on March 14th, aiming to sail through several linked bayous. The expedition will be plagued by delays caused by natural obstacles as well as stiffening rebel resistance. Eventually, Porter and his vessels will have to be saved by Federal infantry dispatched by William Tecumseh Sherman. The same day that Porter embarks on his Steele's Bayou expedition, David Farragut leads a flotilla on a daring attempt to pass under the guns the Confederacy has placed on the bluffs at Port Hudson on the Mississippi River between Vicksburg and New Orleans. Only Farragut's flagship, USS Hartford, and USS Albatross make it through the furious rain of rebel shells. USS Mississippi, having run aground, is destroyed to keep her from falling into Confederate hands. Also on March 14th, in the wake of the Emancipation Proclamation, former slave and abolitionist Frederick Douglass, who has been assured by the War Department that black soldiers and sailors will receive the same pay as whites, releases an appeal titled Men of Color to Arms in the National Anti-Slavery Standard. By every consideration which binds you to your enslaved fellow countrymen and the peace and welfare of your country, by every aspiration which you cherish 
for the freedom and equality of yourselves and your children, by all the ties of blood and identity which makes us one with the brave black men now fighting our battles in Louisiana and South Carolina, I beg you to fly to arms and smite with death the power that would bury the government and your liberty in the same hopeless grave. I am authorized to assure you that you will receive the same wages, the same rations, the same equipments, the same protection, the same treatment, and the same bounty secured to white soldiers. The iron gate of our prison stands half open. One gallant rush from the north will fling it wide open, while four millions of our brothers and sisters shall march out into liberty. On March 16th, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton sends initial instructions to Samuel Gridley Howell, James McKay, and Robert Dale Owen of the newly formed American Freedmen's Inquiry Commission, which is to investigate the condition of slaves and former slaves. They'll soon travel south to interview freedmen and federal officers. Their work will culminate in the creation of the Freedmen's Bureau in 1865. After a daring raid behind Union lines by Confederate horsemen led by Fitzhugh Lee, Joe Hooker told Federal Cavalry Commander William Averill, You have got to stop these disgraceful cavalry surprises. A taunting note that Lee left Averill, his West Point classmate, rubbed salt in the wound, telling Averill, If you won't go home, return my visit and bring me a sack of coffee. On March 17th, Averill leads 2,100 Union cavalry troopers across the Rappahannock River in pursuit of a fight with the rebel horsemen. The ensuing five-hour battle at Kelly's Ford is considered a turning point in the evolution of the Federal Cavalry Arm, as the Yankee horse soldiers prove themselves equal to their rebel counterparts. A pleased Averill leaves a package with a reply to Lee's note. Dear Fitz, here's your coffee. Here's your visit. How do you like it? With the Confederacy racked by inflation, plagued by shortages of essential goods, and strapped for funds, the Confederate Congress has authorized borrowing money through the French banker Emile Erlanger, a deal negotiated by the Confederate Commissioner to France, John Slidell. On March 18th, Erlanger extends a loan of three million pounds, backed by Confederate bonds, redeemable for Southern cotton, to be delivered within six months of the end of the war. The Erlanger loan renews for a time the Confederacy's ability to conduct business in Europe. On March 26th, the Confederate Congress passes the Impressment Act. To supply the Army and Navy, the Act authorizes local agents to seize private property, including crops, foodstuffs, clothing, slaves, railroads, horses, and cattle. Impressment has already been used by authorities in emergency situations, but under this new policy, seizures will become a matter of course in maintaining the Confederate war effort. 
As can be imagined, the new policy meets strong opposition, and eight southern state legislatures will lodge official complaints in Richmond, deeming the act to be, ironically, a blatant violation of states' rights. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Union Cavalry Comes of Age, Hartwood Church to Brandy Station, 1863, by Eric J. Wittenberg. Everyone knows the Union Cavalry suffered early in the war at the hands of Jeb Stuart and the Confederate horsemen. But Wittenberg's The Union Cavalry Comes of Age is the best book that shows how the Federal Mounted Arm started to turn that around in 1863, and by the time of Brandy Station, was able to go toe-to-toe with the rebels. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Two days ago, we released members episode number 149, in which we look at the battle for Pine Bluff, Arkansas, which took place in October 1863. We hope the members of the Strawfoot Brigade enjoy that, including new members Ben B., Carl K., Rob S., Adam, Lori P., and Tom B. And thanks to Chad R. for his donation. And just a reminder that the music you hear at the beginning and at the end of every show is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music. Thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Rich and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.